That's a weird ass high. How so? I don't know. It's just like. It's like I'm on the phone with you. We're going to have to get used to that. I think it'll be actually better, easier to cut. But don't you think it'll be slightly less natural? Depends. I think it really comes down to how good your internet is. So if people don't not- know, Sharice is leaving in about a week's time. I know, in 10 days. You're more sad than we are. Um, I wasn't looking for you to be sad. It's fine. Oh. That was said so defensively. You're sad inside. I know. I know. The one thing that we were discussing was the amount of lewd jokes that will now emerge in your absence. But I don't feel like I actively prevent them from happening. I think it is just my presence. But wouldn't Nicole being here do the same thing? No. No, definitely not. Can you... I I don't know what to make of it. I, yeah. I'm sure you guys will be fine. Yeah, we'll be fine. We're going to need to uh, balance things out, I think, somehow. You mean gender-wise? Yeah. How are you going to do that? I have no idea. I just, I'm throwing that out there. You have to have Nicole and Jill come in more. Mm, yeah, maybe. If people don't know... Nicole, Nicole is your wife. Yeah. <laughs> and Jill is a good friend of ours. Who works with Nicole? And they both come into the office to work. So if you are a female freelance creative in Hong Kong and would like to come up to the making office and sit around and prevent the guys from Police making off-color that's jokes, kinda, that's, that's kind of sexist, isn't that? I think so. Okay. Well, anyway, we got spare desk now. So you came should, back we tell from- it, should we tell them the secret that this is recorded a week late because we okay, missed last but week? But the thing is that it's... See, okay, I feel like your concept of time in the podcast is different from my concept explain your of concept. time in the so, podcast. We are recording this right now, as in we're recording this today. I'm not pretending that we're recording this seven days ago. You're right, but it should have released. Yes, but like it's not week. going to be. Yeah. So I'm not speaking as the, though I was in the past. I still have all the knowledge that I have right now. All right, don't get all philosophical on me. I just mean like... Anyways, so what happened was I was traveling last week and we're unable to record. So we're doing last week's topics. The thing is, what I'm saying is it doesn't really matter. Timeliness, it matters. Because like, No, if but you, it doesn't matter when you're listening to this if you pretend that it was last week or not. No, but if you're expecting it to release every week, when but an it episode should, did go up. 58 went late, up a couple of days ago. Which was late too. Yes, but I'm saying it... Oh, never mind. Never Basically, mind. it should be one episode a week. But okay, listen. People also don't listen to the podcast the second it comes out. So no, I could agree. be listening to our voices saying this two years in the future. Oh yeah, totally. And but then I it doesn't matter that- to this hypothetical listener who is now laughing to themselves two years in the future when we recorded this. But then but then it's a slippery slope if you don't set yourself a certain level of expectation. No, I know that we have to God. record and publish regularly, but I'm saying it doesn't matter the way you talk. You don't have to speak differently because <laughs> in your head it was a week ago. You're right. You're right. That's right. I don't I don't know, man. So I did get feedback from a listener who says the most entertaining parts of making it up is when we strongly disagree with each other. Yeah, like we're disagreeing right now. Yes. So to them, this is the most enjoyable part. And all the rest of the stuff that comes after this is just boring. 
Unless we find ways to disagree with each other. Yeah, you're right. We got to find ways to disagree. But that's what I was saying is going to be more difficult. Don't point your finger at me like that. I'm pointing at the table. (laughs) That's what will be more difficult when I'm in London is because it's harder to interrupt each other. Yeah, right. You're right. I think so, at least. Unless we have like... So So, you were traveling because... My grandma passed away. And I'm not saying that... You said that in like a kind of strange tone of voice, honestly, because it almost was verging on cheerful. Well, it's interesting because I wasn't sure how to react because this was the first time someone in my family has passed away that's been super close to me mm. at this juncture in my life. And what I mean is like you're old enough to recognize like, I guess, how do you put it? Like look back on family ties, family connections and how everything is. And in all fairness, my grandma lived to like the age of 91, right? That's a pretty long... That's a long life. Yeah, exactly. So I don't know what there is to me necessarily sad about in a way, it's more like a celebration. And mm. I look back on it, I was like, hey, you know what? Like, I've, I've finally come to terms with like understanding what it means now. And I mean, the saddest part is really just the people around you are, are sad, I guess. But I, I, I'll honestly walked away with, it's like closure, right? You see your mom, like my mom's mom, right? How they react. And that is arguably more impactful than the, the act itself of death. You know, how the people around you. Right. Well, but it's also something that was, it was on the verge of coming anyways. It is interesting because when a death occurs, the person who's deceased is no longer present. Yeah. So it is very much about observing how the people around you are now reacting. Yeah. I felt like when I was at the funeral, it was like my mom and I were always looking at each other to see how we're reacting. Mm-hmm. And it was more like you're worried about their emotions more than your own. I don't know if that's an Asian thing though. Or just your specific relationship. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the one thing that I kept thinking to myself, so my mom's been at the funeral for her dad and her mom, mm. and she's literally shed like one tear mm. ever. And I was like, man, that's like a, I think that to me, when I was thinking about it, I was like, fuck, that's pretty, I don't know if it's deep, if it's like, I don't know. That was the one part I couldn't really like pinpoint. It was like, why is she not crying? Does she need to cry? Do you, but do you think that some people just aren't, don't cry easily? I don't know. Actually, I've n- never seen my mom cry. And my dad, I've seen him cry maybe once or twice. And the one time he did cry was because I couldn't get a math problem. <laughs> Swear what? to God. Yeah. When you were a child? Yeah. He was like trying to teach me some math shit. And I was like, fuck, I don't get it. Okay. Uh-huh. I started crying. And he's like. And then he was just also frustrated. Because I think he was just like ripping into me so hard. Uh, or maybe because I was that dumb. One or the other. Or just like really frustrated. I can imagine crying out of frustration. Sorry, dad. I had to put you on blast there. Does he listen to this podcast? No, no, he doesn't. no, I didn't think so. Yeah. When you're at a certain age, you also recognize that it goes from weddings. People attend to like that sort of encapsulates how you spend your celebrations to people giving birth and then death. Well, that's the natural cycle of life procedures in life. Right. Um, I was just thinking about how it, not that I want this to occur to either of us, but dealing with a death of a elderly person is still a lot easier than someone who's young or someone from illness yeah. Or accidental. Un- unexpected death is probably the most difficult one. Sometimes you don't even know what emotions to really experience. Nor should you really pick and choose. I think that's the one thing too. You don't really pick and choose. 
One, I guess to kind of switch gears into mm-hmm. something that's more neutral because <laughs> that was super <laughs> we, heavy. Yeah, we went, we went all in. Yeah. Uh, so I was reflecting on this the other day. Distractions are things that we can remove from our life and it doesn't cost us any money, but we're increasingly spending money to take them out of our life. So what that means is that like, oh, you're going to go on a vacation where there's no cell service. Uh, and it's like one of those. Or you're going to go buy a Kindle because there are no pop-up notifications or, or push yeah. notifications. Yeah. So, you know, it came, I came to the realization that removing distractions are theoretically cheap. It's the willpower that's expensive. That's such a something that sounds pithy, but I don't think willpower has a cost tied to it. Well, it's limited. It is expensive. Anyways, uh, to that point, I am enjoying my new Kindle. What are you reading? <laughs> the way you set your margin whiffs is still driving me nuts, but I've just let you continue doing yeah. what you like my to do. My margins are... Your margins are ex- actually half of the screen width. The text uh, itself takes up half, and then the margins are half. I aim for about six words a line. Why? Because it's easier and faster to read. You don't, don't have to scan as much. That. Are you kidding me? That's not, that's like a scientifically proven to be not no. an optimal width. No. How, wait, okay. Have you ever looked at a speed reading app? If you go on the Instapaper <sighs> speed reading app, it shows you only a handful of words at once. That can't be comfortable. Oh, it's so comfortable because my eyes, wash my eyes right now. No one can see this, but it's just like, I don't even have to move my eyes. It's all within my periphery. Okay. <sighs> Try I just it. can't. No. But then you have to tap the page so much too. It's a nice feeling. It's a feeling of accomplishment. It's I a little li- dopamine I like, hit. I like my settings. It's a little dopamine I hit. I like my settings on my Kindle. Dude, my, my text size is massive now too. I look like an old man when I read. Just I'm, just shaking, I'm just shaking my head at Eugene. Just like slowly shaking my head. If we were one of those podcasts that put images in our show notes, we could have taken screen caps. Sorry, I mean photos of our Kindles. I think mine is right. I think mine is like objectively the right setting. <laughs> All right. Anyways, <laughs> what do you want to talk about? Oh, so I published honestly what I think is my best work yet last week. I do. I really do. In the last year or so, time goes by really quick that I've been helping out with editorial stuff on Macon. I think this is my best work. Why do you think it was your best piece and what was the piece? So the piece was a total, it came out to around 45 minutes. It's an audio story of an interview with Avery Truffleman, who is a producer at 99% Invisible, which is a very popular podcast, part of Radiotopia, created by Roman Mars. And they talk about all things that are in the world and tend to be overlooked, especially in design and architecture. And Avery Truffleman, she's been a producer there for five years. And I was listening to 99PI before doing editorial work for Macon. And I think she and 99PI were one of my points of reference. Yeah, us as well. All along for how I do my work and how to to write stories. Well, the thing is that after I started really working on audio stories, I intentionally increased my audio consumption, podcasts and audio stories and in general, my media consumption and trying to be more agnostic to to see more of what everyone is doing rather than just what my personal favorites are. Still, 99PI is one of my favorites and I think yeah, it's technically very, very high good. Quality. Yeah. Yeah. So I got to speak to Avery back in April when I was in SF. And then 
I was cutting the audio and I actually asked you this as well. I was like, this might be a story that I want to run as just an interview, which you know I don't regularly do. I usually cut quite a lot and then write around quotations and then, you know, do the voiceover plus quotations. But Avery and I just had a really good conversation with each other and it was best preserved as it was. Yeah. It took me all of like 37 seconds <laughs> to be like, yeah, yeah, you should definitely run this as a conversation. Yeah. Like there was also no good, like I think I would have been detracting from it if I had just isolated her main points and taken away the parts where we were asking each other questions and where we're laughing about things. It is nice when you are speaking to someone that is also trying to bounce things off of you as well. Mm, And I I don't think that's always our intention so much as that sometimes when you have a good rapport with somebody, it naturally opens the floor to a different type of dynamic. Yeah. Yeah. It really depends on the conversation because some people are It's interesting because some people are really used to being interviewed, like big figures. And so they kind of anticipate your questions and they might not think so much about their answers. And those are the people they don't really ask you back things. And then there are people who are not ever interviewed and they're very hesitant, right? They're like, oh, is this the right answer? And you want to get someone who's like both enjoys being interviewed and hasn't been interviewed so much. Yeah, I think that results in a really great conversation. I don't know. I was really happy with it. Sharice is not going to talk about this, but she sent me some of the screen caps. She's she's kept a pretty extensive folder of all the shoutouts she's received. Do you know why I keep them? I've actually been doing this for about two or three years now. For all things. For all things. Oh, okay. Whenever someone, if if in an email, there was for my freelance work, they say something's I've done a good job. So I keep a folder on my desktop of these screen caps. In case I get down on myself, that's why. Oh, I don't, interesting. I don't keep it to share with people. Like, I, I like don't, I don't keep it. it as press clippings, but I like so that I can tell someone someday, like, oh, so and so said, <laughs> what about me? I keep it so that when I feel like, oh, my work is terrible, like, what am I doing? I can look back and be like, no, wait, okay. At one point, these people were really, you know, whatever that they said. That's that's good. I think it's important because yeah. I think you forget. I think when you get down on yourself, you'll be like, why have I put so much time in this and who is even paying attention? It's funny. I did do, (laughs) in retrospect, mine sounds so lame because I did something very similar, but, and I guess I'm not that embarrassed to admit this, but I wrote myself a letter. Um, (laughs) Elphick, turn around. (laughs) You didn't hear that. I wrote my, I was like, yo man, I remember a few weeks ago, (laughs) you didn't do that. Anyways. For people, for context, <laughs> Eugene just said that. And then Elvig like whoops around and just like yo, looking at us. <laughs> but yo, I was like, there's, it, it happened a few weeks ago. I was like, fuck man. Like I'm, I'm pretty fucking wrecked right now. Not, not drunk, just wrecked. And I was like, oh, you know what? It'll be fine, Eugene. And I wrote myself a letter on my Dropbox paper and I read it once. I'm like, oh, I feel fine now. I mean, the things that you do for yourself those are important and you don't have to share. I mean, you, you did, you just well, share them did. on, on mic, but whatever keeps you going, right? I think I was kind of inspired by those letters people write themselves as though they were like younger. What you would write your 20-year-old self or 25-year-old self. Oh, this is an exercise they do with elementary school kids. And I actually think I did one, but I don't know where my letter would be. You know where they ask third graders to write yeah. to 
yourself as a graduating high school senior. And then if you like stay at the school, they'll give it back to you. Oh, interesting. No. I've, I actually think I might've done this, but I don't remember getting the letter back. Yeah. Got it. If you ever have a kid, you can do that. <sighs> or that. we can write to ourselves for when we're 40 or sometime in the future. Uh, should we get going? Yes, let's do this. <laughs> we talked about a lot of things. Death. We talked about death for we 10 about minutes. Death. We talked about how we spend money to not be distracted. We're about at the point where we have to do a spin-off podcast for our own intros. Don't No, no ideas. We're doing one only. One podcast All right. only. Let's get started for the day. What's your subject? Is there room for art in outer space? I really wanted to say, is there space for art? In outer space. <laughs> but I felt like it was a little too much. But I had to let you know anyway that I initially wrote that pun. There are more than 1,800 active satellites orbiting around the Earth. And they do things like get weather data, do I'm the GPS not that for maps. I'm not that surprised. Spy on other countries. I don't know. I, I felt like 1,800 was a high number. So this fall... A new satellite will be joining them, launched by SpaceX. And what it is, is a pure art project created by an artist named Trevor Paglin called Orbital Reflector. And after the satellite is launched into the air, it's going to unfurl into this 100-foot long... Unfurl. That's the word. Unfurl into a 100-foot long sculpture in the shape of a diamond. And according to the artist's statement, he says... Orbital Reflector encourages all of us to look up at the night sky with a renewed sense of wonder, to consider our place in the universe, and to reimagine how we live together on this planet. Very lofty goals. Understandably, I think it's understandable, at least I don't know how you feel yet. There has been quite a bit of pushback from people in science and not in science saying space is a place that should be protected and suffers the same danger of being polluted by yeah. humans as our mountains and forests and oceans, which are already polluted. So their argument is that there's no room for passive satellites that don't have any function. And we need to shield space. We need to be more strict about what goes up and yeah. what, what stays up there. Then the people on the art side, including the artist himself and his supporters, say the art is of as much use and purpose as the functional stuff. Yeah. As in its use might not be practical, according to the scientists, like it's not a GPS or whatever spying on North Korea, but it has a purpose as art. Correct. So that's the setup. I mean, if someone was making money off of this, then I think it would immediately change the dialogue. In so, a way, aren't people making money off of this? Well, I, the way I look at it is that if you are a telecom company putting a satellite into space, that arguably is more justifiable, right? Because, because it's part of your business. Exactly. Like it's a, but I also think that there is an openness to the to space itself that I think should be a little bit more democratic. Like who's the one that de determines yeah, what's important? Yeah, that's the right? other, that is one of my issues with it is not just, okay, what should go up, but who even has access to space? It's people who are, really wealthy and have connections and who are also fortunate enough to live in certain countries, right? Would be open to doing that. And so I don't know if I necessarily, necessarily object to Paglin's art project, but it seems very clear to me that 
he is in a position of privilege of getting to put his art into space. Yeah. VS artists from other countries who would, mm-hmm. who can't dream of having that. Do you subscribe to the philosophy behind the piece of work? Not really. Not really. I don't feel particularly moved by thinking that there is an object out in space that is pure art. And I do actually, I don't know if you're going to think this is really hippie. Muslim astronomer said this too. Isn't it sufficient to look up at space itself? I was going to say that too. And be amazed by space because I think space is amazing. The diamond that he created, how is that different from a diamond as a star? I'm not... Isn't there Isn't there I children's... Don't, I don't feel very negatively towards his art piece, but I can definitely say I'm more impressed by what is already naturally out there that we still don't fully understand yeah. than something that a human puts up there. My thing is probably a bit more of a compromise. It's like, why can you not utilize design as we see it now as part of a broader equation, not relegating it, but just having it part of the overall design of a satellite that actually has function. So why not just kill two birds with one stone? And my reaction, yeah, that too. And my reaction overall to the finding that there are 1,800 active satellites is, aren't some of those redundant? Can't we all be smarter about what we're putting in space? Not just the art is what I'm saying. As a whole globe of people, because my understanding is space is meant to be open to all countries democratically. So as humanity, can we put some more regulations as to what goes up? Because I do think that but then it, it is I think like it's been very, very hard to govern. Yeah. Think about the seas, like the oceans, how hard that is to govern. That's true. My, my, my thing is this, is that if you can build functional and aesthetically pleasing skyscrapers, I, I see them two in the same. Why can't you apply that same logic to satellite design? I think overall, I've, I've also just been feeling a kickback against material goods. Not to say that I'm this perfect person who doesn't consume trash and doesn't, you know, drink out of plastic cups. But I have been thinking increasingly more about our choice in materials and the usage of physical items. And actually what this this art piece reminded me of is this other artist. Are you familiar with an artist named Christo? Um, Sounds vaguely familiar, but nothing kind of pops into my mind. So Christo and I think if you saw his pieces, you would remember this guy. Christo and his late wife, Jean-Claude, are known for these really extraordinary sculptures that are set into physical locations, such as most recently in Britain, a giant stack of 55-gallon barrels numbering 7,506 floating on the Serpentine Lake. And they're also known for doing the floating piers. It's like these yellow piers. Yeah, I'm looking looking at it right now. So he's known for these huge environmental installations and he gets a lot of pushback from all kinds of people, governmental, environmental, artists, all... A lot of his detractors are saying, what about the environmental effects of what you do? I I haven't really reached a resolution because I agree that his work is stunning to look at. 
And I actually find his work more interesting to me than Paglin's, probably because of the interactive elements, like the floating piers. You know, people can walk on the piers yeah. in these interesting formations that they wouldn't have been able to otherwise on the surface of a lake. But then there is concern for, you know, what is this doing to the lake? What is this doing to the marine life that mm-hmm. live here? I just work through that balance because I think... I'm always going to lean on the side of being pragmatic and practical. Not that things can't be beautiful, but you're now held to a higher standard because of the reality of the situation and you have to take into account what's around you. It's selfish to not try to bake in those parameters. I see what you mean. I want to say, you know, there's room for art to do controversial things and for art to do things that aren't done. But it also doesn't seem sufficient to cause harm and then try to make up for it in some other way. Especially at this point of civilization when we're so aware of how much we are causing harm to the earth, I'm not convinced anymore that the art is worth it. This is not really something, like I definitely think younger Sharice did not feel that way. Like younger Sharice felt more pure about like art being... But I also think that if quote unquote younger Sharice was living in 2018, it would be hard to ignore this. Yeah. So I don't, I think it's more of a byproduct of the time. That's true. I think that's also why I just younger Sharice would probably have been more on board with the orbital reflector project as well. I, I think, you know, how you were talking in the intro about just becoming more conscious of death and being able to reckon with death's effects on you and the people around you. I think I've become more aware of what we're doing to the earth and what my role in that is. This podcast has been about aging. <laughs> and it's been probably our most somber one to date. I don't know. I'm not like in a particularly somber mood. We happen to pick things that a topic, wound up I guess. that way. Do you want to go into your subject? Sure. So my subject this week is Epic Games just gave a perk for folks to turn on two-factor authentication. Every other big company should too. It's a TechCrunch article, which as the title gives it away, focuses on the recent campaign by Epic Games, creators of Fortnite. And what they did was they basically incentivized users to turn on their two-factor authentication so that, you know, obviously you're more secure, you have better control of your account. You can't have people come in and hack you as easily. Generally speaking, it's like virtually foolproof. And then on top of that, they also gave you a reward, which was the ability to have a boogie down emote, which yep. is basically a dance. So yep. I thought this was really interesting. The reason why it's interesting is that I think cybersecurity as we know it is something that's not really discussed. It's it's unsexy. A lot of people don't really know what it means or how to protect themselves. Even the simplest things such as this are things that are worth considering. So if you're not familiar with two-factor authentication, you've probably done it in some capacity. It's just that you haven't done it uh, in a certain capacity. And mm, what Gmail is pretty good about suggesting it, yeah. but they don't incentivize you. They just Correct. put out reminders every now yeah. and then. So in my opinion, one of the easiest ways to do it is just to turn it on and then download Authy, which is an app that works on your phone. And what these do is they create like one-time codes over 30 seconds. Uh, and the reason why I suggest Authy over the Google one is 
the Google one is really hard to recover should you lose your phone. But with Authy, there is, I mean, still it's a password, but like you can have all your two-factor authentication for all your accounts under Authy and you can have one master password. Okay, so wait, sorry to give a little context to people. Two-factor as a concept is just when you have to give two different items in order to access an account. So for most accounts that you access, you probably just type in one password. One, two, three, four, five, six. Was a very common password as a recent as 2016. Yeah. So two-factor means you have to do two kinds of passwords. So for example, you type in your password and then they send a text to your phone and you input the text message. Or like Eugene said, you can use a, a third-party app. Oh, or there's also like, like your thumbprint, can, your thumbprint, blah, 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 sorry. Or your thumbprint can be the second factor. Basically, whatever it is, yeah. there's two things you have to do. There's also hardware keys, UB keys, et cetera. Which makes it hard for people, which makes it hard for someone with malicious intent to hack into your stuff. Yeah. So this ultimately sounds probably super boring. But, but it's so important. It's super important until you get hacked. Uh, but it's super important because you prevent hacking. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Like, because you just it, said, you seem it's, it's, no, it seems as though it's, it not seems a big unimportant deal. until you get exactly. hacked and then you regret it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, like I said, I think cybersecurity going forward will be very big, especially if we start to control, you know, all our stuff. What's interesting is that, then you can correct me if I'm wrong, but if someone was to hack your Fortnite, what could they actually take? Could they just transfer items away? Mm, that's interesting because you can pay for Fortnite items. So I wonder if there is any way to save payment methods. Because if there, if that's the case, then that would be what's yeah. at stake. But ultimately, as a company or brand, it's good to have this as an insurance policy for yourself. Because first off, it's less of a headache. Because you don't have to put up with, you know, people that got hacked and how to best facilitate or fix the situation. Because ultimately, despite what people might say, they will find some way to turn on the company. I well, okay. I've speaking. just done a quick Google, and apparently, for Fortnite, you can save your payment method. And there are some threads online that says remove your payment info after buying anything. Makes sense. But people probably are lazy in that yeah. regard because let's say you make a lot of purchases, you don't want to have to type it in every time. If you're on your computer already, can you Google what the average Fortnite age is? I want to say it's probably like 13. Okay, I don't know what Virto Analytics is, but yeah. according to Virto Watch, Fortnite is most popular among players between the ages of 18 to 24. Oh, really? Who account for 63% of all Fortnite players. Interesting. Anyway, so that point, I mean, eight, that's a lot older than I had anticipated. But regardless, I think that you're going to have people mm. that are going to be put onto this. Maybe it's just that demographic I was just going to say as well, though, it's possible that kids are playing with their parents' accounts. Uh, so that would not be an accurate measure. Well, they'd still be the minority, though, because 64% are 18 to 24, right? Yeah, but 22.5% are 25 to 34. Your Your point, I think, is still valid. I basically think that the earlier you can educate people on its importance, the better. I agree. Uh, and I think that ultimately, like, it's a kind of easy way for people to kind of have an understanding of how things all work. And I, I think ultimately, like, you are, you will end up at some point in time where your Fortnite wallet or your game wallet itself will just basically be an opportunity to make money off. Why of do you things. think people are so lax about cybersecurity? Because you don't 
reap the benefits. And it's also a pain in the ass sometimes to always have to put in a, like, for example, if I log into my Gmail or whatever, I'm always needing to activate it. Well, Gmail is not the best example. You can save it for 30 days, but there's a lot of things that I do that personally can be a pain in the ass. One of the other ones too that are important that I don't think a lot of people do is sometimes it's helpful to set up a dummy email account Mm. or an email account you rarely use. It's almost like a throwaway account that you know the password for that no one knows, but associated with payment information. So it's not publicly Mm, available. I really like that. Yeah. I think I might have to do that. I'm also just going to use, I feel like I've already used making up as a PSA for this, but this is a good time as well. Have you used the website? Have I been pwned.com? I'm familiar. It's like, have you been breached? Has your email? Yeah. Yeah. Has your email been breached? So if you go to have I been pwned, have I been pwned.com, you can enter your email address or multiple email addresses and find out um, exactly what entity, where your data was taken. You know, so I have an email address at like several places, Adobe, Dropbox, Tumblr. Yeah. Um, was, it's been, I wonder how many people actually turned on two factor for Fortnite. After this came out, because I want to know if the perk was enough to allow for the hassle, like it made up for the ongoing hassle. Because yeah. arguably, it's a—I mean, I think it's great still that Epic Games did this, but it is a one-time perk for an ongoing hassle, an ongoing necessary hassle. But it'd be easy for you to just find a way to incentivize new users. So, like yeah. for example. You know, oh, you just joined. If you turn it on, then you will get this dance. I was actually just talking to, on the topic of cybersecurity, I was talking to someone who does digital banking, like in that space. And he was saying that one of their big struggles is to get customers to trust them, is to trust their digital measures, their extensive cybersecurity, essentially. Like what would make you trust more in a company versus another? I actually have an answer to this. So having an industry-wide standard, so like this was tested by this company. So for example, this company is well-known and they're trusted. Like This is stamp of approval. It's kind of like the ISO sort of industrial mm, standard. Like certification. Yes. That'll be the future for sure. Like how restaurants all have Department of Health. Exactly. It's going to be Checkups. That. Yeah. So, so long as you are trafficking in... Payment of some kind, you need to have well, it. They kind of have it too, right? It's kind of whether it's the uh, well, SSL or it's whatever. It's kind of like, yeah, it's like SSL or, um, you know, when you go to HTTPS, yeah. right, with a lock. And it's also why a lot of e commerce gateways will just use trusted gateways such mm-hmm. as Union Pay or PayPal yeah. because then it's not like people don't think you've set up your own private thing. Yeah. But I think as digital banking and online currency exchanges increase, there will be a lot of new players. And how do you have trust in a new player? What it will take in the future is not just industry-wide verification, something like the Department of Health, but people recognizing that this is the Department of Health, as in it can't just be, you know, a small investigation and people would have to actually recognize this stamp across the board because they're Maybe people like us would keep up to date with the changing nature of things, but yeah. a regular consumer who's just getting into it—it's probably like, going to be a government-regulated thing where yeah. hey, they'll come in and they'll like 
they'll be the ones that maybe outsource it, but they'll be the ones that are the stamp of approval. My last thing is this. What's something that you think virtually every single person does? And then can we find a way to use that framework as a way to ensure everyone's secure? What do you mean? Let's say everyone knows how to open a bank account, which is not true, but I'm just saying like, what are things that people generally across culture and society all do? How do you utilize that as a framework for making sure people are secure on a cybersecurity front? What's something everyone does? The thing is that not everyone pays bills, right? It's very hard to say something I mean, I mean, I almost does. feel that increasingly, what if, I mean, it's an educational thing. I think the one thing that increasingly will be a very easy way to get people educated is through some sort of mobile app that, for better or worse, comes integrated. Like it's almost as though the big players and the TechCrunch article, I think, references this, where if major players that, for better or worse, are the service providers are forcing you to do it, then it becomes a thing. Oh, okay. Yeah. That might be it. If accessing the internet um, became conditional on you passing certain cybersecurity measures, then yeah, people would do it. Yeah. Because you wouldn't give up access to the internet for that. Exactly. So maybe that's it. Maybe it's Facebook, Google, uh, Apple, all being like, hey, turn on your two-factor. Otherwise, no apps for you. (laughs) It'd be good. It'd be in the best interest of everyone. Actually, I feel like I was trying to make us think a little bit more profoundly when in reality, the answer was already mentioned in some other instance. I feel kind of cheap about that. Anyways, way. but before we get to that point, everyone turn on their two factor. Yeah. This has been a PSA brought to I you feel by like a lot making of people it up not listen <laughs> to this first They'll entire probably, yeah. segment. Yeah. I guess if we were a video and then you did the Fortnite dance while talking about it, people would have watched. Yeah. That's a good place to cap things off for the day. If you are interested in hearing more about Macon, plus reading and listening to some of our stories that are focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture, visit us at Macon.com. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by reviewing us on iTunes or sharing this podcast with a friend. One thing, in all honesty, we haven't got a lot of is... One thing we'd love is to hear from you guys. If you've been tuning in regularly, what are your insights? What do you think we could do better? Actually, to add on to that, I do sometimes hear about what we do well or not so well, but we don't really get a lot of what would you like us to talk about or if there's something we talk too much about and we haven't realized that. Blockchain. (laughs) One thing that'd be great is if we made this thing a little bit more collaborative because I think ultimately... Sharice and I only know so much, right? And I would love to be challenged with different topics and to approach different things and you know formulate a point of view on it. But how can you get in touch with us? I'd like to think that most people are probably listening to us via a podcast app. So why not just shoot us a DM on Instagram or something? That feels like the easiest way. And if it wasn't self-evident, Macon... <laughs> I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up.